720 WGN. Hey there, it's Amy Guth here on the Wintrust Business Lunch. Thanks for being with us today. Always grateful to you for sharing part of your Saturday with me. Really very autumnal weather happening. I'm not ready for that at all. We still got music going. Oh my gosh. Uh, Not ready at all for the weather to change. I'm a summertime kind of person and oh my gosh, I need more of it. I'm not ready, but we will keep you updated as uh, this apparently autumnal weather starts to move in. Okay, lots to do on the show today. A little bit later, we're going to be talking about the state of labor unions in the U.S. And of course, we're going to follow on a story I touched on a little bit on the Crane's Daily Gist this week, and that was about sexual harassment reports at Exelon and what that means in Springfield. It's got a kind of a lot of a lot of paths and a lot of tentacles on that story. So we're going to be talking about that. But right now, speaking of cranes, Chicago business, we're joined by Greg Hines, who is a columnist there who wrote about a proposed plan to sell water from Lake Michigan to Joliet and how that could be a very, very big business. Greg, welcome back to the program. Thanks for being with us today. Hey, Amy. So talk us through this story where the idea is to sell Lake Michigan water to Joliet. Uh, the idea is indeed to sell Lake Michigan water to Joliet. Joliet, uh, like a lot of suburbs uh, in the in the western part of the metropolitan area, relies on aquifers, uh, wells. Uh, well, those aquifers are now starting to dry up. They've maybe got another six, seven, eight, ten years uh, before they don't have enough water to serve the demand. Uh, so they need to buy from somewhere else. So they uh, put out a request earlier this year for information, to, you know, the Interested parties, come and show us that you can pr- provide us what you want and tell us what you want to do. And Chicago bid for it, and apparently bid for it pretty hard. Uh, city officials actually went out, uh, who you would think would be working on the um, Mel Lightfoot's budget problem. So they actually took a day and went out to Lightfoot, le- went out to Joliet last week to uh, uh, pitch uh, the city's idea. Uh, uh, we don't know exactly what it is, but uh, it looks like there's a fair amount of money involved, uh, certainly in the tens of millions of dollars a year. And when you're looking at the numbers in this story, and for those of you who follow me on social media, I've already tweeted this story out on my Twitter account so you can see it for yourself and see all of these numbers. But um, when we're talking about the amount of water, I mean, we, we think of, you know, Lake Michigan's there. We don't think about water levels. In fact, most of this season, we've been talking about being the water levels being pretty high. But we're talking about about four million gallons a day per decade is what it's sounding like in the initial reports. Uh, it's, it, it is indeed, uh, it's a lot of water, um, but uh, Chicago has the room to do it. Uh, uh, under federal law, we're able to take only so much out of Lake Michigan uh, on any particular day. We're now taking out about half of what we're legally entitled to, and that's for not only for Chicago, but Chicago already serves several dozen closer in suburbs. Uh, but, uh, you know, this is a resource. We can make some money on it. Uh, City Hall insists that all oh, the idea here is not to make money. Don't put that for a second but to uh, uh, make nice with the suburbs and show that we can be a leader. Uh, but, uh, you know, uh, for a city in financial problems that's looking for uh, for ways out, Lake Michigan is a real resource. I mean, much of the country is water sh- not not Florida this weekend, but much of the rest of the country is water short. And we have this wonderful resource there. We actually have too much of it at the moment. And it's all free. All you have to do is pump it. So why the heck not make some friends out in the suburbs at the same time that we maybe do ourselves a little bit of good financially? Yeah, I mean, that that was originally, I mean, that's where my mind went to when I first saw this story. And that was, okay, well, this is going to be, this perhaps would help fix the uh, the budget hole for sure. But you mentioned something interesting I want to go back to, and that was, um, we're, we're taking more than the legal 
limit out of the lake already. How are we able to do that? We're taking. No, we're, we're not taking. We're taking half of the legal limit. Oh, at the how, I'm sorry. I thought you said. I thought you said something else. I thought. Well, wait a minute. <laughs> There's got to be something there. We're taking half the legal limit. So, what's proposed is up to that legal limit, or would this would this have to? Well, be this would. This would. This would. Uh, if it was just Joliet, it wouldn't be very much. Uh, but uh, my sources tell me that the, the city also is approaching lots of other communities uh, who are have the same kind of problems. Joliet does the the wells are running dry and they really don't want to take river water because it tends to be a little more polluted and require a lot more treatment so we have uh, it would appear uh, plenty of room within the cap to uh, uh, expand what we take out is there kind of a bigger thing to kind of step back and look at and try to figure out why I mean is there is there a cause of Juliet's water supply running low or is this kind of the course of nature taking its toll or, or, or is it something human beings have done as per usual it's uh, it's two reasons. One, uh, we've been drawing, uh, they've been drawing water out of the aquifer faster than it's being replaced. So that's what you were referring to, what humans are doing. But the other part is uh, Joliet has been growing pretty quickly in the last couple of decades. It has slowed up a little bit uh, after the recession. There's some signs it's picking up again. Uh, you know, uh, Joliet used to be a relatively small community. It's now the, uh, uh, I want to say, the third largest uh, uh, municipality in the city, in the state, uh, it, it it seems to have resumed its its growth. Uh, if they don't have water, they can't grow, so they're going to have to get water. Well, there you have it. Well, we'll keep turning to you for the latest as we uh, see what the city figures out and works out with, with Joliet. Thanks so much for being with us. Greg Hines, columnist at Crane's Chicago Business. Thanks for taking the time to talk with us today. My pleasure. All right, we're going to take a little break, and when we come back, plenty more to talk about, including the state of labor unions here in the U.S., perfectly timed for Labor Day. Back in just a bit here on 720 WGN. And 20 WGN. Hey there, it's Amy Guth here on the Wintrust Business Lunch. Thanks for being with us today. Always appreciate you sharing part of your Saturday with me. Up next on the program, we're joined by Caleb Crane, who is an essayist and author of the new novel, Overthrow. He wrote for The New Yorker about the history and current state of labor unions in the U.S. Caleb, thanks so much for being with us today. Thank you, Amy. So talk us through this piece. Uh, for those of you who follow me on Twitter, I've already tweeted it out so you can read it for yourself. It's a really, really interesting piece. Um, what what about it stuck out to you in, in covering this and, and writing about the state of things with unions right now? Um, I guess I'm sort of struck by uh, what unions have done for equality, um, that if you chart sort of inequality in America, it was very high uh, before the the crash of 1929 kind of goes down uh, during the 30s and 40s and through the 50s and 60s and then starts to rise again in the 70s. And if you track unionization, it's the complete reverse of that. So unions were declining before the crash started rising in the 30s and 40s and 50s. We're probably at their heyday in the 50s and 60s and 70s. And then they started to go down in the 80s as inequality goes up. So it suggests to me that Unions are an important institution in keeping America, keeping equality in American value. I always think it's very interesting to kind of uh, look at the correlation between events that are happening in the public eye and then the public narrative and, and attitudes about things. What role did that play there when we're talking about events that maybe triggered a shift in attitude around unions at various points? Did anything about that stick out to you? Uh, yeah, well, I mean, the you know, unions 
in the 20th century, unions really uh, started to, to take off during the Great Depression when people were trying to figure out how to get out of the mess that uh, the free market had gotten America into. Uh, and there was a sort of general feeling that um, institutions that helped the worker and uh, increased their, their purchasing power uh, would um, be good for the economy and, and get it going again, get it moving again. And then at the other end of that, uh, in 1980, there was a very famous uh, strike by the air traffic controllers that was basically uh, broken by Reagan. Uh, and that kind of it, it, unions were already weak at that point, but that was the that was the the blow that that made the edifice collapse. And and they've been in a pretty steady decline since then until maybe the last five or ten years. Yeah, I, you know, the thing I, I'm always interested in is when there's a, you know, in, any big topic, there's always something kind of missing from the narrative. What do you mm -hmm. feel like that is? Maybe from feedback you've gotten on this topic or something like that, but what what often gets lost in the conversation when we're talking about unions? Um, gee, that's a good question. Um, I, I think what people don't understand is uh, that Unions and politics are kind of, you, you kind of can't separate them out. Um, we think of unions as being purely an economic question. But, in fact, if you look at the history, unions really wouldn't have been as strong as they were in the 40s and 50s if, in the 30s, American politicians hadn't realized they needed to do something to help working people. And they changed the rules for how unions interacted with bosses uh, and gave unions a little bit more of an advantage than they had had really just finally leveling the playing field a little. And then in the 50s, as uh, America started to get, um, you know, back on track, uh, corporate influence, conservative politicians started to take away some of those uh, supports. And so whether unions prosper or not is, is, uh, is perhaps more dependent on uh, the larger political context than on anything that people in the unions themselves do. Yeah. Uh, you know, I want to shift a bit because you close the piece kind of kind of wondering about what unions of the future might look like. And, yeah. uh, you know, technology and the the legal space where it's often behavior worker and, and employer, you know, boss behavior uh, sometimes is outrunning the uh, the law, not outrunning the law, but, you know, kind of is a step ahead of where the law has caught up to. We talk about yeah. that so much on this program, certainly when talking about tech giants and and tech culture. What 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 is your gut there about what unions of the future might look like as we're in a moment with, you know, the gig economy and we have so many gig workers and the tech space is often out ahead of the law a little bit and, and what what might that look like well yeah i mean one thing i wonder about is whether the sort of value added that many of these tech companies uh provide is is necessarily how much of it is actually due to technological innovation and new ways of organizing work and how much of it is due to actually undoing labor protections by sort of creating this new way of of, of thinking about work so i mean uh, in the 19th century, a lot of work was done at home with gig economy and uh, with piecework, and uh, it's a great way to exploit workers. Um, it's only when workers come together in a factory that they can communicate with each other and have these alliances and sort of rally around and protect each other. So, yeah, I, I don't know what's going to happen to the future of unions. Um, one thing, reading this piece, I hadn't re when I was working on this piece, I hadn't really realized how much uh, union strikes have gone down, um, really dramatic uh, decline. So they, they don't have the old classic um, weapon that they used to have. And unions seem to be trying to evolve and develop 
techniques of storytelling and reaching out and um, and doing sort of demonstrations, strikes that are more sort of for demonstration purposes rather than attempts to cut off the labor supply of a company um, because they just don't have that power um, to to deprive companies of labor, especially with uh, the gig economy. Yeah, yeah, that's a really interesting point, and I think that's an important comparison to kind of look at uh, kind of the piecework um, you know, 19th century workers at home. I think that's a really interesting comparison to draw and one we should probably continue to draw because I know we've talked about gig economy workers many times on this program. I want to mm-hmm. shift as we as we are beginning to run out of time, though. I want to talk a little bit about your book, uh, your your new book, newly out. It is called uh, Overthrow. Tell us a bit about that while we have you. Oh, sure. Yeah, it's a it's a novel. It's about a group of young people who. Uh, are meet during the Occupy moment, and some of them have this belief that they uh, belief in radical emotional transparency, bordering on telepathy, uh, which may or may not be real. Uh, but they get in trouble. They break into a computer being used by a government contractor, and then there's a mess of sort of journalistic attention and and uh, legal trouble that they get into. Uh, plus, there are various love stories going on. So. Sure, there's always got to be a love story, <laughs> right? <of course. laughs> um, and so, and that book is out now. Yes, out from Viking. Uh, yeah, got a great review in the New Yorker and last week, and the New York Times before that. And uh, yeah, so available everywhere. Wonderful. <laughs> well, congratulations. What was the uh, what was the thing that prompted you to write that book? What was that first spark of the idea? Oh, um, uh, you know, it was one of these novel novelist things. If I had an image of of this sort of melancholy gay grad student walking down the street at dusk in in autumn, and didn't know where I went, but knew that I had to write that. Excellent. Excellent. Well, I'm glad you did. Thanks so much for being with us today to talk about your book and to talk about this piece. Again, for those of you who follow me on Twitter, I've already tweeted this piece out so you can read it for yourself. It is a really excellent long read. I recommend you take the time and do it. Thank you so much, Caleb Crane, essayist and author of the new novel, Overthrow, for being with us today. Thank you. Seven twenty WGN. Hey there, it's Amy Guth here on the Wintrust Business Lunch. Thanks for being with us today. Appreciate you sharing time with me on a Saturday. So up next, we're joined by Steve Daniels, who is a senior reporter at Crane's Chicago Business. And for those of you who listen to Crane's Daily Just podcast that I do during the week, you probably heard a conversation. We touched on this next topic already a little bit on the podcast, but I wanted to bring Steve back to talk about it a little bit more. And that is on the heels of a report about some widespread sexual harassment happening in Springfield. The uh, the company Exelon is having its uh, having a Me Too moment of its own. Steve, thanks so much for hopping on the show today. Sure, happy to be here. Well, so we talked about this a little bit on the the Daily Gist already, but for those who maybe have not been following the story, talk us through, uh, it seems like these two things happened so quickly, this report in Springfield and then the story about this executive from Exelon, uh, just so close together that it kind of points to some some issues in Springfield for sure. Yeah, uh, well, that, I think that was coincidental more than anything else. He, his... Uh, the, uh, the, the executive in question is excellent. David Fine is there, was there, had uh, senior vice president in charge of state government relations, most visible um, uh, executive for Exelon in Springfield. And Exelon is a very, very politically 
connected, uh, very politically powerful company, arguably the most politically powerful company in the state. They own Commonwealth Edison. And uh, generally, uh, when they want something, they get it from uh, lawmakers in Springfield. So at any rate, the, uh, he, he ended up leaving the company but after this uh, was disclosed in Cranes, but he had been the subject of complaints about sexual harassment from women within the company. Uh, they, uh, the company concluded in documents that we had obtained um, that he had, in fact, been guilty of, of, the, of violating their code as it pertains to sexual harassment, but he was allowed at the time to stay on in his current position. Um, it basically amounted to something like a final warning. That's the words that they used. And then, uh, and then he was to, he was to, to see some, um, uh, decrease in his end of the year bonus compensation. That was the, the tangible penalty in the, uh, in the document. When, when this saw the light of day in Crane's, uh, pretty much almost immediately, uh, the company and uh, David Fine mutually agreed to part ways. Yeah, I mean, and I find the documents very fascinating here. So, you know, these were internal documents that were not, this wasn't a statement. This, these were internal HR documents, not meant to see the light of day, that, that inadvertently made their way to the light of day. And, you know, I found the language very curious in them, as, as you reported on a, a great deal. And that was, you know, it really seemed like it... Uh, you know, and this is kind of my interpretation of it, but it, it, I can't help but wonder is if if this man did not have as much, you know, power and he wasn't as influential and, and wasn't such an important player to Exelon in Springfield as he was, would it have gone the same way? Because it did seem like there were some pretty, you know, major things alleged, although that didn't really, they weren't really described, but it, it does seem like it was significant enough that HR was involved. And it was like, okay, well, we're going to take this out of your bonus, but for real, don't do it again. I can't help but wonder if another employee of less influence or less necessity wouldn't have, been, you know, maybe would have been treated a little bit differently. Absolutely. Uh, I think that is a central part of this. Um, I think it's fair to conclude that uh, somebody who hadn't, hadn't been uh, determined to be as sort of irreplaceable or however you want to yeah. phrase it as he was um, would have would have suffered a, a more significant penalty, probably would have been fired. Um, he certainly in the document, uh, they said that uh, uh, effectively this this kind of thing would mean he if it happened again in any way shape or form he, he he could be fired for cause now when he left the company the, the very very brief statement they provided about that was that the two had mutually agreed to part ways uh parsing that out i think it means that he was most likely was not fired for cause because of course they had initially said he could stay on and that i'm you know Again, connecting dots, don't know this for certain, and I asked and it wasn't answered, but uh, presumably got a, a significant severance to uh, to leave. So, um, yes, uh, I think that is a clearly a part of this story. Um, di pe different people get treated differently for the same infractions. Yeah, yeah, which is, which is unfair, completely unfair. And so then given that this role is so important and you know to this company who does it seem likely will be replacing him good question i don't know i asked i haven't heard uh, i'm not sure that they um have figured that out yet uh and you know this is all this was all happening relatively suddenly um 
but uh, they're going to need someone quickly because they are pushing legislation in the fall veto session, which is just around the corner. It's in the in November. Uh, that would that is that is both controversial and very crucial to them. Uh, it, it involves uh, uh, nuclear plants that are very financially pressured that they want more money from ratepayers to support uh, so that they don't feel like they have to close them. They're, they've got five of them in northern Illinois, and three of them they are they say are at risk of early closure. Um, you know, he was going to be the one leading the charge on that. And uh, someone's going to have to do it instead of him. Mm, that's going to be a that's those are um, I don't know. That's not a job I think would be an easy sell. <laughs> like, OK, you're going to have to like walk in there and hit the ground running and do some very, very huge things really quickly. That's a that's a tough sell for a for a job for somebody. It is. They, I mean, the one thing is uh, about this particular company is that. Um, lobbying state legislators, state lawmakers, and at the federal level, too, is a core part of what they do, especially these days with power prices being so low. That really is difficult for, for a power generator, needless to say, if the prices are so low. Um, and they're one of the biggest in the country. They've got a whole army of people that do this. Um, so they can bring in people from Washington to do it. Um, certainly there are people in Illinois also that under under uh, David Fine that, that would do this or would have done this as well. So I, there will be no shortage of people to do it. Just the question is who's going to sort of play the central or starring role. Yeah. And did you get a sense uh, from the company that, that there would be anything else maybe to address, you know, the culture that, that perhaps allowed him to, uh, you know, behave in the way that he is accused of behaving? No. Um, the company was... Very, you know, provided next to no information, uh, you know, other than what was in the documents that I wasn't, that the public wasn't supposed to see. Um, so there wasn't really a discussion of what is what is the workplace culture like? Are there issues? Are there things that we're trying to do proactively um, about that? Um, I will certainly say that uh, I have heard from people since that story was published uh, who were grateful that the story was published. There were there are clearly people unhappy with some aspects of the company culture. Um, but, you know, as is often the case with corporate cultures that are making their employees un- or former employees unhappy, people are afraid to speak out on the record. Yeah, which is, you know, what we what we talked about was happening in, 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 you know, on this report in Springfield about it wasn't just a matter of sexual harassment, but it was also these accusations of, of this bully culture of then it kind of compounds it. So it's not only can someone in that situation not speak up about, you know, something they feel is they're they're being harassed about. But then this idea that, you know, there will be a penalty, there will be ramifications to speaking up. I think, you know, that sometimes that really allows things to thrive and persist that are that are quite toxic in workplaces. And I feel like that's a narrative we hear again and again and again when these kind of stories emerge. Uh, uh, for sure. And, 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 you know, just to be clear, that's that's a corporate America problem. That's yeah, uh, and, sure. and and not just an Exxon problem or or, or certainly a Springfield problem. Um, you know, we in Washington D.C. We, we've seen these kinds of things in the past too. Uh, so it, it it really is uh, one of in, in a in a 
with the trend, with the, with the recent discussions of Me Too and harassment being so front and center, uh, which is a good thing. It's a, that's, a, that's a productive thing in terms of stuff that was handled discreetly in the past. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, obviously it's still, it, still pe- people in companies attempt to handle these things discreetly as they tried to in this case. Um, but we see that, time, you know, increasingly that that's harder to do. Yeah. Um, so it's it hopefully will lead to more open discussion, more proactive discussion um, beyond simply watching sort of her, you know, workplace harassment training videos, which, you know, everybody watches. Right. And um, whether that does much good or not, who knows? I've not seen any data on that, but but you, you can. You know, you can imagine that it's in one ear and out the other for people who are inclined yeah. uh, to do that. Yeah, for sure. Well, very, very interesting stuff. And we will keep turning to you. I, I'm very curious who will end up taking that role previously held by, by David Fine and who, who that person's going to be. They'll have a lot, um, a lot on their plate for sure. Thanks so much for being with us. Steve Daniels, senior reporter at Crane's Chicago Business. Yeah, thanks for having me. You bet. Anytime. All right, we're going to take a little break. Back in just a bit here on 720. 720. WGN. Here's the thing, Ryan. If you put um, if you put any Stevie Nicks on, I'm just going to sit here and listen to it. I'm not going to talk. I'm just going to listen. That's the thing with that. I don't know why. Can you hear me now? There you are. There you are. Yeah, I don't know why I thought you were a Stevie Nicks fan. I mean, it stands to reason. Yeah, I'll just sit there and chill and listen to Stevie Nicks. Yeah, yeah I, I knew I was like, oh, she's got to like Stevie Nicks. <laughs> That's the thing. Sometimes the music's so good, I'll just kind of zone out. Anyway, um, so let's keep the business topics rolling, this being the Wintrust Business Lunch and all. Um, that is something happened yesterday I would like to discuss, and that is um, Twitter CEO Jack Dorsey, who is a... Let's call him a polarizing individual that we have discussed many times on this program. Uh, I think any regular listener will know my feelings on the subject. However, um, yesterday his Twitter account got hacked pretty boldly. Uh, it was There was some very racist stuff coming from his Twitter account, uh, as well as a bomb threat. And that happened about 3.45 p.m. That sort of started coming up. And quickly people were like, Wait a minute. I don't think that's because here's a guy who always is tweeting. He's always tweeting and talking about let's foster dialogue. Meanwhile, he allows so much hate speech on his platform and he gives people a lot of grief for trying to flag hate speech and death threats and things like that. And you have to jump through hoops, even though never mind someone tweeted about wanting to cut my head off. They didn't feel like that rose to the rose so, to the occasion of getting banned from Twitter. That's a whole other story. Um, but he's been trying, you know, Twitter says they're trying and all this. Nonetheless, his account got hacked yesterday. Wired has a marvelous piece. I will tweet it out after the program about how they believe it happened because Twitter kind of, you know, came out and said, like Twitter comms came out and said, you know, we're aware. And then after it was recovered, like he's tweeting to recover it. But um, what they have what they have kind of talked through is this idea. Um, it's called the SIM swap attack. Basically, um, this and it, there's a particular focus around AT and T with this. But essentially, in a SIM swap, someone either convinces or bribes a carrier employee to switch the number associated with a SIM card to another device. At which point, they can intercept any kind of two-factor authentic uh, you know authenticating 
codes. It'll, you know, send you a text as they enter your code. They can then intercept that because they've switched it to a different device is what's essentially happened there. So um, that's AT&T didn't respond to an inquiry from Wired, so they couldn't confirm that. But it seems like, you know, a, a, a platform that has allowed that and pushed that technology on so many, you know, even the president of the United States uses Twitter all the time, right? Well, I was going to ask what, you know, average Joes like us, we tweet something bad, we get fired. What happens if you're the CEO of Twitter? Who, who fires you for tweeting something well, bad? Well, he didn't do it. I mean, he, he... No, I know. But if, like, if if you... Well, that's a thing, right? Like, people have called for his job many times, right? Yeah. Because they're like, hey, you're saying one thing and doing another. This you're isn't around. even the first time this has happened. No, it's it not. It said it happened back in 2016, too. That's right. That's this right. other group of... Our minds? Is that... Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, there's that. There was another story that came out, though, and that was about... Um, I'm going to have to summarize because it, it's it's pretty far-reaching and interesting, but I will... You know what? I will tweet this one out after the program, too, in addition to that Wired story. But um, essentially, there was a some some... Because we use the word hacker usually with a negative connotation, and I have long said, not always... Like hacking is not always a bad thing. Sometimes you want people to push on security measures to see just the strength of your site and your service. Anyway, some people employed by Google found on Thursday night um, that there were some sites that since 2017 have been accessing iPhones for years, thousands of iPhones. This is a really interesting story. Again, I'll tweet this out of the program, too. Um about how essentially there's there's just like a, a smattering of sites out there that if you visited them as an iPhone user, they just kind of, you know, in in simplest terms, made the stars align so that they could access your device very clearly, very, very clearly, uh, repeatedly after visiting one of these sites. So it's really interesting. There's a lot of, you know, think pieces kind of being written now, like here's what you do next, or here's what, you know, here's how to do this, here's how to protect your data. But I mean, it's all about a bigger conversation about, data security and data privacy. I talked about this uh, last week on the show after I just watched The Great Hack documentary and I still cannot stop thinking about it. It's about Cambridge Analytica and that whole scandal. And it's so interesting because it's really made me think very deeply about, you know, every swipe of our debit card, every tweet, every location that we have enabled for every app. I mean, that's all collecting a data point about us. And that's such a... Um, you know, a, a lucrative business to to be in the data business. So it's all about that. And it's all about how do we protect our data. And um, I've said dozens of times here on on the show that the the European Union courts are doing such a better job being a, a lot more vigilant and, and thinking about data privacy of citizens in such a very different way than we are. Yeah. Such a different way. So I'm always interested to see, you know, how European courts compared to ours, which are doing mostly nothing. Yeah, a lot of that data hacking stuff, it, it, it helps sometimes, you know, in, in times of when you need to find out, like, somebody stole my card and where's it at? And, and you can track the phone so easily now. Um, but yet, people are so afraid, I think, these days of, like, Oh, they can they can listen to my Amazon Echo or whatever, and uh, that all this hacking stuff. And like you said, it's not always a bad thing. Sometimes it, it kind of helps helps companies learn how to be safer. 
Well, and I think I think that particularly with data privacy, I think a lot of times the conversation gets like, oh, well, so they'll target ads to me that are of interest to me. Whatever. That's not the end of the world. That's not what it is at all. Yeah. Right. There's it's so much deeper. And, and this is explored in that documentary. But also, you know, we have to think about um, I, there's a there's a book called Terms of Service by uh, Jacob Silverman. I interviewed him a couple of years ago. And I think about that book a lot. It's this book is a you know a handful of years old by now, but it's still so relevant. It's just as relevant today as it was the day he wrote it. And and that is really about, it goes beyond, um, it, it's a matter of what's happening to our data. And it's about how we are manipulated to make decisions, how we are beyond purchasing, like big social things being influenced. And that's kind of was the the gist of, um, of that documentary. If it wasn't just Cambridge Analytica kind of put one type of political content in our feeds more than another. It was about, actively in you know it kind of leads up to this hypothesis of what if they actively influenced us preyed upon fear social fear and and made the the world as divided as it is right now and, and i think one of the one of those things is elections that you yeah. know coming up and and just how facebook can sway you one way if they you, want you to, gotta or... watch this documentary you yeah it, it deals with brexit it deals with the presidential campaign and it's not even it's not even just let's put political stuff in front of people to get them to back this candidate it's like let's get people riled up about social issues so that they will automatically very easily side with one candidate or another wow. have a strong feeling about brexit i mean it's fascinating what's it called where is it on it's called the great hack it's on netflix okay it is so good I sounds like a good weekend watch right there. yeah it's really good i mean i ha i kept hitting pause and making notes going oh my god i like went <laughs> let it sink in for I, yeah i had to just go oh that's huge and i was i mean i did some fact checking there's a couple things that like interview subjects say in there that's like well that's not quite right and there's a couple people in there painted very sympathetically that i don't think should get as much sympathy as they do yeah so but it's fascinating oh, anyway interesting. go see it i promise i won't talk about it again i know i talked about it last <laughs> week too but i can't stop thinking about it it's such a big thing